America is an exceptional nation with freedoms, uh, opportunities, and blessings that few, if any, nations uh, have ever experienced. Uh, Many say that America is the greatest nation ever. America is exceptional. And with that said, we would be naive to ignore the darkness which pervades America. In America, racism and prejudice are alive. Public discourse is often hostile and discourteous. Corruption invades government, business, education, and law. Mass media revels in sexual immorality. Families collapse under the pressures of sexual immorality, divorce, domestic violence, and other social ills. Each year, abortion massacres hundreds of thousands of Americans. Terrorism, gangs, drugs, prostitution, gambling, identity theft, bullying, pollution, suicide, debt, and that's only the beginning of the darkness in America. America is exceptional, and yet darkness pervades America. Before seeking a solution, we need to ask a a critical question, why does darkness pervade America? And unless we answer that, we'll never find the right solution. I think it's obvious why darkness pervades America, but I think people don't want to acknowledge it. Darkness pervades America because darkness pervades the human heart. Social ills are caused by people. People are the problem. And though you and I may not deal drugs or may not join gangs, we each contribute to darkness in our own way. If the darkness is going to be dispelled in America, it must first be dispelled in our hearts. How does that happen? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Only light dispels darkness. The light we desperately need to dawn in America and in our hearts is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. America needs the light of Christ who alone transforms hearts. As you know, I say a lot in my sermons, uh, but I try to make one big point, one big takeaway, and here's that big point for today. Jesus Christ is the great light that has dawned in the darkness, so look to Christ and heed his words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist preached it, Jesus preached it, the apostles preached it, Faithful preachers today preach it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. America needs that message. Well, recently a bunch of people connected to Jerusalem Church have moved. Virginia to Mannheim, Mount Gretna to Lidditz, Lidditz to Lidditz, Lidditz to Atlanta. Well, in verses 12 through 17, Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum by the sea, maybe into a house with a coastal view. I hope that was the case. Uh, and we could, we could say that this move is eternally significant. So I have three points about Jesus' move from Nazareth to Capernaum. Jesus changed neighborhoods, number one, because John the Baptist was arrested. Number two, to fulfill Isaiah's messianic prophecy. And number three, to reveal more about the kingdom of heaven. Number one, Jesus changed neighborhoods because John the Baptist was arrested. In chapter two, Jesus is born... And Joseph takes him and Mary from Bethlehem to Egypt to escape Herod's infanticide. Herod eventually died, and Joseph moved his family out of Egypt to Nazareth in Galilee because Herod's son Archelaus was a potential threat in southern Judea. So Matthew records two of Jesus' moves, 
and God protected and preserved Jesus in both moves. Verse 12 says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. John's arrest essentially came down to his conservative stance on sexuality and marriage. Herod Antipas wanted his brother's wife, and John said it was unlawful. Into the slammer John went. During his ministry, Jesus said things like, My hour has not yet come, and my time has not yet come. So I think John's arrest made things a bit thorny in Judea. And Jesus' departure to Galilee had something to do with safety until his God-ordained rendezvous with the cross. Verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived by Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Galilee was densely populated. First century historian Josephus estimated the population of of Galilee's smallest village at about 15,000. Galilee was fertile and cultivated land and also a significant uh, trade location. One commentator said, quote, Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere, end of quote. Because of its history, Galilee had major Gentile influence. It was a multi-ethnic area, and one scholar said, quote, Galilee was the kind of country where new teachings might be heard and even welcomed, end of quote. Jesus' move tells us something about God's plan of redemption. Jesus didn't begin to preach in Jerusalem, the hub of Judaism, but in multi-ethnic Galilee. Jesus didn't choose his 12 disciples from the religious establishment in Jerusalem, but from historically disreputable Galilee. This at least hints at God's redemptive plan for the nations, a theme that Matthew emphasizes throughout his gospel. Capernaum was a beautiful location by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus probably enjoyed uh, many quiet morning walks along the coast in communion and prayer with God. I think that's a wonderful thought that, that uh, he might have done that. And, and Luke 4.31 refers to Capernaum as a city of Galilee. So it was not likely a small fishing village. Scholar George W. Knight noted that Capernaum was, an, was near a major east-west trade route and contained a custom station as well as a military installation under the command of a centurion. So Capernaum was different than Hickville, Nazareth, where Jesus was from. So next, and this is the most significant, number two, Jesus changed neighborhoods to fulfill Isaiah's messianic prophecy. This is a significant point, and there's a lot to it. Uh, Verses 14 through 16 explain it. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Those are beautiful words of hope and salvation, and they have eternal implications Matthew mentions Isaiah's prophecy to continue to establish Jesus' identity and work as God's promised Messiah sent as a light to the nations. I want to highlight three main things that I think should help you understand what Matthew is saying here. First, how frequently Matthew mentions Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Second, how Matthew emphasizes the Gentiles in his very Jewish gospel. 
And third, why Matthew quoted Isaiah 9. First, think about all the Old Testament prophecies and covenants that Matthew has either explicitly mentioned or alluded to in the first four chapters of his gospel. Lots. Uh, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 40, Micah 5, Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31, the prophets in general, and even the book of Deuteronomy. And that's just the first four chapters. No doubt, Matthew purposefully and repetitively takes his readers back into the Old Testament and covenants to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive covenants, promises, laws, and is therefore good news of salvation. Matthew now quotes Isaiah 9 to advance these truths even further. Now, before unpacking Isaiah 9 and how it connects to Jesus, remember that Matthew's audience uh, was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. We could say that Matthew is the most Jewish gospel, but even so, we see purposeful and explicit mention of the Gentiles throughout Matthew. So secondly, notice how Matthew emphasizes the Gentiles in his very Jewish gospel. This is an important connector to Isaiah 9. One source commented, we could say this is a very Jewish gospel because it emphasizes Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies so much. And yet, it also emphasizes the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. End of quote. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom is hugely significant. The kingdom of heaven is beyond the nation and borders of Israel. The dividing line between Jews and Gentiles is gone, as Paul establishes in his epistles. God's redemptive plan for the Gentiles was not an afterthought. It was not plan B, but was written into the covenant of redemption before creation. And Matthew helps us see God's heart and his intent for the Jews and Gentiles alike. Matthew begins his gospel explicitly referencing Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy. Abraham was a pagan Gentile. Some think Tamar was a Gentile. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile. Bathsheba very well could have been a Gentile like her husband. In Matthew 2, verse 3, Jerusalem was troubled at the birth of Jesus. And yet Matthew emphasizes that while the Jews were troubled, God graciously brought Gentile wise men from afar to worship Christ, the child king. In Matthew 8, 5 through 15, Jesus healed the Gentile centurion's son. And Jesus said about the centurion now, a Gentile, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus added this astonishing comment, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Matthew pushes us beyond the boundaries of Israel to the Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 12, 15 through 21, Jesus, he's he's exciting, he's healing people. Matthew says Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy, and Matthew quotes Isaiah saying, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew 15, 21 through 28 is a very intriguing interchange between Jesus and the Gentile woman. He healed the woman's daughter, and Jesus said to her, O woman, 
Great is your faith. In Matthew 24, Jesus preached about the signs of the end of the age. And in verse 14, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 25, verse 32, talks about the final judgment when Jesus welcomes his people into his eternal kingdom and banishes unbelievers forever. And Jesus says about himself, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep from the nations are gathered into his kingdom. One last Gentile connection. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus does say to his 12 disciples as he sends them out, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that was before the cross and resurrection. After the cross and resurrection, notice the change. Jesus told his disciples then, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, the nations, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew repeatedly pushes his readers beyond Israel. Why is it noteworthy that Matthew, the most Jewish of all the Gospels, emphasizes the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven? Listen carefully. Because the kingdom is not tied to a place, an ethnicity, or a nation. God's covenant of redemption, his eternal plan of salvation in Christ, has always included Jews and Gentiles, which he gathers and unites as one people beneath the reign and rule of his son, the anointed and chosen king. Jewish and Gentile believers are a united people, one people living beneath the reign and rule of King Jesus as he governs them by his word and by his spirit. Jesus talked about the oneness of Jews and Gentiles. He said, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And that's exactly what the Abrahamic covenant promised. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Praise God that that is true because we're the nations. Third, notice that Isaiah 9 mentions Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew's use of Isaiah 9 is significant. First, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of Jacob's or Israel's 12 sons. Joshua 19 describes the land given to Israel's sons, including Zebulun and Naphtali, whose territory was north by the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was in that territory. Isaiah preached God's judgment and curse on Israel and Judah by Assyria. He also preached uh, judgment and curse for the nations. And Isaiah was disheartened. I can't imagine this as a preacher. But Isaiah found out that God was sending him to preach to Isaiah and Judah not to save them, but to harden their hearts. Yet Isaiah preached the coming of the Messiah. He preached the great king who would bring the kingdom. Now, here's an important piece of backstory for Isaiah 9. 2 Kings 15 describes something significant which happened in Galilee before Isaiah prophesied. Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, 
invaded and overcame territories in the northern kingdom of Israel, including Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and proceeded to carry people to Assyria. And that exile was extremely dismal for Israel. Terrible. And the NIV Archaeological Study Bible notes something fascinating. Listen to this. The northern part of Naphtali was inhabited by a mixed race of Jews and pagans. Its Israelite population had been carried away captive to Assyria and had been replaced by a colony of pagan immigrants. Hence, the region was called Galilee of the nations and its people Gentiles. During and after the captivity, the predominant mixture of Gentile races impoverished the worship of Judaism. And for the same reason, the Galilean accent and dialect were noticeably peculiar. This caused the southern Jews of pure blood and orthodox tradition to despise the Galileans. Okay, so a territory originally given to sons of Israel became known as the Galilee of the nations. And right before Isaiah 9, in the last verse of Isaiah 8, Isaiah prophesied this, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness as they looked not to God, but to earth for solutions, darkness pervaded Israel. Who would be their light? Now, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, because it's the hope of Israel. In fact, it's the hope of the nations. And it relates to Jesus' move from Nazareth to Capernaum in Matthew 4. Isaiah prophesied this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the Assyrian conquest. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. That's talking about the arrival of Christ bringing light to the Galilee of the nations. Oh, the gloom and anguish of conquered and exiled Israel and even the nations, and Isaiah gave them gospel. The gloom and the anguish would end God, who at one time brought contempt upon Zebulun and Naphtali, in a later time would make glorious the way of the sea, would make glorious the land beyond the sea, would make glorious the Gentile of the nations. A great light would dawn and shine upon those walking in darkness and living in the land of deep darkness. The great light would not only dawn upon Israel and Judah, but would dawn upon the nations. Are you seeing the connection? No human solution or effort would overcome the darkness. Looking to earth will not provide the answers. Isaiah mentioned people living in darkness. What's that about? Well, Dr. William Hendrickson understood that to mean living in danger, fear, and hopelessness, a pining away with no human help in sight. Dr. Hendrickson understood darkness as three figurative things, Delusion, depravity, and despondency. In other words, delusion or spiritual blindness, depravity or sinfulness, and despondency or hopelessness. 
Matthew likely has all three in mind when quoting Isaiah 9. The Jews and Gentiles of Galilee and beyond were living in the darkness of delusion, depravity, and despondency. Even in the region and shadow of death itself. And Jesus moved to the Galilee of, of, of the Gentiles to shine as the great light of salvation in fulfillment of Isaiah 9. It's wonderful. Je Jesus wasn't coming with a kingdom of political power or national resurgence and dominance or a kingdom confined to one parcel of land or people, but a kingdom of light and gospel and spiritual transformation of people from the nations. Jesus came and inaugurated a spiritual kingdom into which he was bringing the nations, a, a kingdom which would one day see consummation across all the earth. I'd like to, to consider this quote from John Calvin. It's long, but I think it will help you better understand uh, how Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4 fit together. Calvin said this, now we know that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, and therefore the light of salvation which it brings and all the assistance which we derive from it must correspond to its nature. Pause there. Okay. The kingdom which Christ brought is not an earthly or political kingdom tied to a nation with uh, physical assistance, but is a spiritual kingdom of salvation from sin, guilt, and misery where he rules and reigns as king over the hearts and lives of his people. And as his people, believers receive spiritual assistance from their king. This spiritual kingdom is now. It's already. But it is then and it is not yet. Inaugurated but not consummated. Well, Calvin continued, hence it follows that our souls are plunged in the darkness of everlasting death till he enlightens them by his grace. The prophet's discourse relates, no doubt, to the destruction of the nation. Calvin's talking about uh, Isaiah and Israel. But presents to us, as in a mirror, what is the condition of mankind until they are delivered by the grace of Christ. So if I understand Calvin right, he was saying that Isaiah 9 describes the destruction of the nation of Israel, which is historically accurate, and Calvin adds that Israel's demise and darkness was typological of the sinful condition and spiritual darkness of humanity. Christ dawns to bring redemption from sin, guilt, and misery. Matthew uses Isaiah 9 in reference to Jesus bringing the gospel of the kingdom to Jews and Gentiles who alike are lost in spiritual darkness. Calvin then added this, when those who lay in darkness are said to have seen a great light, a change so sudden and remarkable is intended to enlarge our views of the greatness of the divine salvation. The coming of Jesus as the great light enlarges our view of the greatness of the divine salvation. The darkness of Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4 is ultimately not the darkness of Israel's loss of national power, prominence, and land, but about the darkness of sin, guilt, and misery, which is dispelled by the coming of Jesus Christ, the King, who brings salvation through repentance to God and gracious entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is good news. 
This gospel of salvation in Christ alone is for Jews and it is for Gentiles who are trapped in spiritual darkness, delusion, depravity, despondency. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. It's amazing. It's so good. But you need to look deep within Isaiah and understand what Jesus fulfilled. Jesus moved to the Galilee of nations. He began his ministry and dawned upon them the great light of his reign and rule over his one people. All nations lived trapped in the region in shadow of death. And Jesus came from heaven to earth as the great light and he brought life and he brought immortality to the nations through his gospel preaching of repentance into the kingdom of God. Mark introduced the, the preaching ministry of Jesus like this. Now after Jesus was, uh, John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why did Jesus preach repentance and the arrival of the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom is spiritual. To be included, you must despise your sin. You must despise your sin and turn away from your sin and turn away from your guilt and your misery to the king for salvation. So let's try to connect some dots. Number three, Jesus changed neighborhoods to reveal more about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus began his preaching in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, what did he preach? Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached what John the Baptist preached. We've heard this message before. But Jesus was the king preaching. The king had come to preach this message of the kingdom. Re Repentance assumes sin and guilt under God's law. Repentance makes no sense if you don't have a, a, a deep doctrine of sin and guilt under God's law. So repentance assumes that. And no one enters the kingdom without first understanding their sin, guilt, and misery and their desperate need of God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness in Christ. It is guilt that leads to grace that leads to gratitude. Now, many preachers today don't want to preach the law or sin or guilt or repentance. They just don't go there. But this is where Jesus started. Jesus called people to turn from their sin to God. This is why we preach the law and the gospel and why we call people to repentance and faith here at Jerusalem Church. We preach the law so that people understand their sin and guilt. We preach repentance to call people to hate and flee their sin and guilt. We preach Christ crucified so people know how they are delivered from their sin and guilt. And we preach the law after the gospel so that believers know how to obey Christ in deep fellowship with God. Darkness pervades America, and America needs to hear the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We may be citizens of the greatest nation of history, but my friends, my friends, are we citizens of the kingdom of heaven? A necessary mark of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is ongoing repentance. 
but what is the kingdom of heaven? And keep in mind, the kingdom is also called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or several other titles in Scripture. What is the kingdom of heaven? And I want to share a profound statement by 16th century German theologian Caspar Olivianus. Listen very carefully because Olivianus clears up a lot of confusion on this topic about the kingdom. Olivianus described the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of Christ like this. It is a kind of rule over the people of God in which there is one head, namely Christ the Lord, who is gifted far beyond all angels and people with wisdom, counsel, might, and all other gifts. This head, Christ, rules his subjects even in this life in such a way that he produces eternal salvation in the hearts of all the elect through the preaching of his holy gospel and the power of his spirit. So, pause there, the the kingdom is now as Christ rules his people in his life producing salvation in their hearts through preaching and through the Holy Spirit. Now, how does he do it? Olivianus continued, he does this by incorporating them into himself by faith and the testimony of the holy baptism, by graciously not imputing their sins to them, by daily purifying them from sin, by living in them and ruling their hearts with his Holy Spirit, and by using as means to that end the preaching of the Holy Gospel, the administration of the Holy Sacraments, and Christian discipline. That tells you a lot about Jerusalem church right there. So Christ, our King, unites people from the nations to himself by faith. He testifies that they belong to him through baptism. He does not impute their sins to them, but to himself. Daily purifies them of sin, lives in the hearts with the Holy Spirit, and uses preaching, the sacraments, and church discipline as the means to those ends. But why? Why? Olivianus continued, this is in order that in this life they might live happily in the Lord, have peace with God, and at last in eternity live and reign with their king. This is the kingdom of Christ that begins in this life and will increase in the heart of every believer. Folks, that's the gospel. That is so precious to the saints. I hope your heart delights in hearing that. Saints, the kingdom of heaven is not the restoration of the theocratic kingdom of national Israel, nor is it social reform, but rather, as Louis Burkhoff rightly concluded, is, quote, the rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners by the powerful regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. See, Jesus brought a spiritual and an invisible kingdom to earth where he would conquer sin and death and misery in the hearts and in the lives of his people to reign and rule there in us. And at the same time, he promised a great future, an eschatological kingdom of external glory in all the earth. What is the solution to pervading darkness in America. Simple. Christ shining his law and gospel through preaching and his church's living. 
America needs the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to know that King Jesus commits war against our enemies of delusion, depravity, despondency. Without swords or tanks or guns, Jesus uses the weapons of preaching, the sacraments, and church discipline to conquer sin, to conquer guilt and death in the hearts and lives of his people, uniting them to himself to live happily, gratefully, and peacefully beneath his royal reign and rule now and forever. Political reform, education reform, economic reform won't dispel the darkness Only one thing can dispel the darkness in human hearts and in America, the dawning of the great light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we come to my big point. Jesus Christ is the great light that has dawned in the darkness. So look to Christ and heed his words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from the gloom and anguish of the darkness of delusion, depravity, and despondency. Hate and flee your sin and put your trust in Christ because he alone dispels the darkness by the light of his person and work. There is no greater kingdom because when Christ conquers the darkness of delusion, depravity, and despondency in our hearts, then we enjoy reconciliation and relationship with God. And listen closely. And the virtues of his kingdom are created in us, in our hearts and in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want a kingdom where those virtues prevail. Don't you want to live in that kind of kingdom? And our king is prevailing in our hearts. He's prevailing now, dear saints, so that little by little, these virtues are increasing in your life, in us, until one day, that one glorious day where the consummation of his kingdom comes and all of his citizens will live these virtues out perfectly in his everlasting kingdom. This is the gospel. And we're going to live in all the earth the redeemed earth where we, we live out these virtues for the glory of the king. I love America. I feel so blessed to live in America. Do you? I mean, what in the world? This nation is amazing, but America is a dark place. We see much hopelessness around us, don't we? Talk to people. Read the news. Watch the news. This is a hopeless nation. We're in trouble, and we need the great light of Christ to dawn. We need the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What solution is there for America's darkness? Just just one simple solution. Christ graciously conquering our sin, guilt, and hopelessness through repentance and faith and flourishing us beneath his magnificent reign and rule. That's what we need. We need Jesus. Where Jesus reigns and rules in human hearts and lives, there is a glorious kingdom. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only the great light of Jesus Christ can do that.